2: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Bethany Johnson about her new book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise, which she wrote with her co-author, Margaret Quinlan. Welcome, Bethany.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad you're here too. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. And my name is Bethany Johnson. As you said, I am a historian. Um, my specialty is science, technology, and the environment, and my sub-specialty in that is medicine. And over the years, I've had a two-pronged focus, which sometimes overlaps. Reproductive health, history, and the history of epidemics. Um, I have worked at University of North Carolina at Charlotte as a visiting lecturer in STEM history, I study how science, medical technology, and public health discourses are framed and reproduced, particularly in the 19th century into the present. I've published in a number of journals, including health communication, women and language, um, really fun ones like departures and critical qualitative research. And recently, uh, my book that I co-authored with my academic wife and buddy, Dr. Margaret M. Quinlan, Uh, called You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise, came out with records. And um, during the last five years of research and publication, shifting jobs, and going back to finally complete my PhD, I had two children. I have a five-year-old named Hazel and a two-year-old named Otto, and they've both had a birthday under COVID quarantine. Um, And If I may, I'd like to also introduce my co-author. Yes, please. Okay. My co-author, her name is Dr. Margaret M. Quinlan. She's an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies um, at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She wears a number of other hats, too, but I know we only have an hour. Um, Her focus is she explores how communication creates, resists, and transforms knowledges about bodies. Previously, she did work in the disability community as someone with invisible disability, learning disability specifically herself. Um, It's something that she talks about openly, and she's a real leader in the university community about how to move in academic spaces with some of these challenges. So, all any challenges Maggie has aside, she's authored forty journal articles, seventeen book chapters, and co-produced three documentaries in a regional Emmy award-winning. Series. She is truly excellent, and I'm sorry we won't get to hear her voice today, but um, it was wonderful to write this book with her. And I'm lucky to work with someone in a different field because she is teaching me new skills and new ways of framing things all the time. And also during our last five years of research together, she also had two children. She has a six year old named Sweeney and a two and a half year old named Teddy.
2: Thank you for that. And we want to say that we invited uh, Margaret to be part of this today. And due yeah. to some scheduling complications, she couldn't join us and she graciously uh, wanted it to go forward and has given us her blessing to uh, proceed today. So we wish she could be here, but we're thankful that we have Bethany and we're going to be talking about the book. Um, yeah. Bethany, can you tell us a bit about what inspired you and your co-author to write this book?
1: Yeah. Um, so the sort of famous Genesis story, famous for us, no one knows us or the story really, but it's very core and central and very descriptive about the way that we work together and how our research unfolds. So um, at the time we we're actually writing about Twilight Sleep and Twilight Sleep, it, we wrote about it in the book as well. It's an early 20th century birth method, um, sort of Scaffolded around a drug cocktail that erases your memory. People get something similar today, excuse me, if they get a colonoscopy or um a similar procedure. But at the time, it was really, really popular among feminists and suffragettes that didn't um, weren't familiar with the word feminist, which was a very new word at the time, and they all thought it would be just the height of um, empowerment to be able to check out of a birth that could emotionally exhaust you and kill you as a result. And that was sort of how the dynamic was unfolding. Um, What Maggie and I were looking at at the time, we had already published an article on it, but we kept hearing about a couple of doctors in Brooklyn. So we decided to go to Brooklyn, get into some archives there and just double check that we weren't missing anything important. Um, And we did actually find some good stuff there. So we drove from Charlotte, <laughs> where we were both living and working at the time. And I was in the middle of an IVF cycle. Um, and it was my third, the first two had uh, failed and I had had two failed IUI cycles as well. Um, and Maggie was pregnant. So I remember, and she, when she has told this story, she has said at the time that she was, and, and this is true to who she is anyway, um, she was really conscious of the way that she was showing um, right at this time when I was at this sort of critical nadir in my experience with fertility and that um, Sweeney had just started kicking and she like didn't feel like she could really necessarily talk about that at the moment. She was just really sensitive to this place that I was in because I left on this trip right when they were starting to fertilize embryos in the lab. So we get there and the next morning I'm showering. It's 7.38 in the morning and I get a voicemail and we're just about to go out for the day. And the voicemail says, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to leave this kind of voicemail. I really prefer not to do this with patients, but um, it looks like your embryos are going to peter out and I'm just not sure that we'll have a need to keep. Um, if you could call me back, we can talk more about it. Okay. Have a good day. Bye. Um, and I just remember just staring at Maggie with my mouth open and she was like, "What? what? And I just kind of dissolved on the floor and like went out in the hallway and called my partner, Eric. And You know, was basically like, I don't think we're gonna have biological children. It's cool, like we just need to embrace it, and that's this is where we're at. Um, and you know, Maggie was like, let's go home. You know what? We can just go to our car, turn around, and go home so that you can grieve and be with Eric. And um, I just felt so powerless that the only thing that felt good to me was researching. (laughs) So like, I know how to research. I know how to find stuff. I know how to take notes. That is what I can do right now. And that is the only thing that I want to do. So Maggie, our bags, and we hoofed it for a long day in the city going to archives. And when I felt ready to talk about it, we talked about how, you know, the embryologist said, call me back. I couldn't call them back. The office didn't open until 9 a.m., It went to an answering service. The embryologist was a floor below where my doctor worked. It was a building owned by this practice. And the embryologist had not been trained to understand how a phone call got through. And so this practitioner patient communication is what it is often termed in fields like health communication. Um, It was just horrible communication. And so we're working on this historical project. And Maggie said, you know, we can do a study on this. And this is, this is Maggie to her core. She's always there to say like, okay, let's ask this question together. Let's do this together. You have my full support. Let's do this. And by the time we were home, we had all of our questions. We had an IRB drafted. We switched driving and held our computers on our laps as long as the batteries lasted. And that was nine articles in a book ago. (laughs) So, it was a really beautiful moment in which I was just, there was so much sorrow for me. There was so much of a sense of failure and difficulty and how I felt about my body. And I had this friend who just made space for me, but, and also knew like, you like to ask questions. You like to do research. Let's do this together. Um, and we interviewed dozens of people. We did a number of studies. We ended up doing research that produced um greeting cards that people wanted to get when they were in treatment, but they didn't exist at the time. We did, we worked with graduate students and uh, made a documentary. So it's been so fruitful, not only to have this friendship, but to have this academic relationship. And so we were already working on Twilight Sleep. We, we dove into infertility. And along the way, we spent a lot of time um, reaching out to communities on social media to try to get participants um, who would then do, you know, consent forms and the whole thing. And um, (laughs) spending all that time on social media, we started to notice that there were some really interesting discourse happening. And um, I will also say this, Maggie is a I don't know what the right word is, obsessive, I think she would say, and she would say that's fair, and she would laugh. Um, Collector of information or things that fascinate her, and we would be working on something else and be like, Maggie, that is so cool. Can you please put it in a Google folder? And so we just had all of these folders inside of folders inside of folders, and we just weren't sure when we would ever get back to it. And we did. (laughs) By the time we got back to it, We had what was coming together into this much larger uh, narrative arc and this much larger research set of questions that we needed to ask, and it was enough um, to do a book, which is how how we got there.
2: That complexity in delivering information and delivering it appropriately, as well as the responsibility of those who are exploring fertility and pregnancy to to locate information and to sift it and to evaluate it um, is really a theme that runs throughout your book. And in Mm -hmm. the introduction, you say it's not a parenting book, and it's also Mm -hmm. not a book about advice, but that you explore how social media platforms um, utilized through tablets, smartphones, and other wireless technologies, collapse the boundaries between public and private, as mm-hmm. well as technical and lay. And it sounds like you would add to that telephones and um, message delivery services on how those mm-hmm. are blurring the line between what is public and private, because that voicemail they left for you was so intensely private.
1: Absolutely. And I had signed off earlier on the right for them to do that. What I didn't anticipate and what probably none of us anticipate in these systems, including the providers, is that the when and how of what you've agreed upon is as important as what you've agreed upon. It never says, you know, we'll wait until business hours so you can call us back directly if we make a voicemail. You know, these are not things that are sort of sewn into the archetype of these you know agreements that you just fill in your name and yet they are really long and they're really complicated and there's so much that we don't think about in the terms of the delivery of the information and the exchange and where the discourse happens and it can create a lot of <laughs> the types of really painful situations like I had we interviewed people um, for some of our um articles that sort of fed into what we were looking at for infertility in the book and we had people who worked at pharmacies and knew uh, as a pharmacist that they would be on a certain shift and knew that that was the shift they would be getting phone calls about their embryos and requested from their practice that they would only call their husband um, and they refused to do that and so they called and left it on her voicemail at work which was very hard for her not to listen to I i wouldn't have been able to not listen to it she was not able either And she got bad news on it and she cried her way through a pharmacy shift. Um, So as much as there is a legal structure and there's an informational structure and there's a procedural structure to these things. So the who and how of communication is still very, um, very different than what we might assume going into these processes. And we needed to look at that more closely, particularly as we... Um look at something like social media. I mean, you look at what's happening right now with you know Twitter, whose tweets you know, and like what kind of addendum of information will you put on it, and how does Facebook look at um, fake news, quote unquote, and how this information we're, we're really coming to a crisis point as a culture. And I think this is common with technology. Our technology is always so much quicker than our understanding of its impact on us the legislation, by the time it follows, is generally already ineffective when it's passed. Uh, and I think we're definitely seeing some of that upset and some of those growing pains on Twitter and Facebook even today.
2: And one of the points that you bring up early on in the book is that even among professionals, such as doctors who are experts in this field, they, they differ between themselves on what research they're still relying on, uh, Mm. how they handle their practices. And it makes it difficult for you, as you've stated, not only to know what to expect, but importantly, to know what to believe. Can you say a Mm. bit more about that?
1: Yeah. um, So I can give two two examples. And I think something that we didn't get to talk about as much in the book, because it felt like we were trying to do so much already. And we were, you know, just hopeful we could do that well. That, you know, all of us kind of have, you know, we have our everyday day-to-day life where we're meeting in person with people. We're having face-to-face communication, communication in the quote-unquote real world. And then we also have the communication and the discourse and the interaction that we have online. And all of us have, for the most part, some of a little bit of both, even in very remote areas where people don't have a big presence on social media platforms, text, you know, SMS that has reached nearly everywhere in the globe at this point. So there is some, in almost every space, some digital way that people can interact with someone else. So when I was in the doctor's office and we moved to Charlotte from Connecticut and we brought our files with us. And the first doctor that we were assigned to, I I remember we brought him our files which I thought, hey, wouldn't the doctor want to know what we've already done? When the doctor wanted to know what our last protocol was, how I reacted to things, isn't that good data? You know, whatever. This was going to be good data. And I remember him just kind of tossing them onto the table next to him and going, "Well, thanks for the homework." Um, I was sort of like, "Okay, well, I guess we're starting there with this individual." And I remember some of the other things he said and said were, um, you know. Don't do acupuncture. That's a total waste of your time. I can't support it. And I was just asking him questions. I wasn't saying anything that I was hoping to do or planning to do. I was just trying to get a feel for what expertise spoke to him, what methodologies and therapeutics did he respect, which did he reject. I was trying to get a, an idea of the landscape um, of, of the the way that he practiced. We didn't actually with that doctor because it's really hard for me to have a doctor that I don't feel respects me as a person or you know rolls their eyes if I hand them a medical file. but I think you know other patients that we interviewed who mentioned he was their doctor, they didn't know um, that he was my doctor as well had a great experience with him. so so I have this experience with this person in the office and then I go online, And if I have a question, you know, and right now we're looking at some of Amy Schumer's posts on IVF on Instagram. And as Maggie always says, you can ask about a rash or an IVF quote unquote diet or acupuncture or anything else on social media. And within minutes, you'll get a lactation consultant, a parent who has had six children, um, you know, a working mom with one child. Someone that sells Shakeology, a weekend nurse who's posting information about her hospital, but through her private account, sometimes a doctor, um, someone who works for insurance and maybe, you know, an athlete and also someone that runs a daycare center. So it's such a wide range that in that moment, it can be completely overwhelming what people are saying to you because how do you decide what the information is that you're going to take on. In the interaction with my doctor, I can get a good feel for what that doctor supports or doesn't support. And I can make a choice about whether or not I will stay the course with that doctor and that treatment plan. When I'm casting my net out on the internet, anybody can give me information and the information can be so diverse and at times so contradictory that it becomes very difficult to suss out okay, what kind of expertise am I going with here? Who, you know, all we can do in some cases on social media, um, who sounds the most confident? (laughs) But that is isn't an indicator of the efficacy of what the person is suggesting. But it can feel like, you know, the loudest, most confident voice in the space might be the easiest one or the best one to listen to. So we were interested in how those exchanges work and also how we participated in them. How did we, how were we chiming in, in these spaces? And and how was that different from the way that we had interacted with people previously? And then, you know, the historian in me was like, okay, well, let's scope it way back. Is this new? How many voices were people dealing with in previous time periods? You know, we know there was really extensive reach of media, um, well-established by the, before the 20th century, so how is this different? Um, and so that became really important for us to understand because of our own experiences as well.
2: And you get into that, into chapter two, you say the social and emotional challenges faced by contemporary cis females are eerily similar to those of more than a century ago. And you do a lot of, uh, comparing that despite all of the expertise today, uh, women are still socially and emotionally facing so many of the same challenges. Can you, can you say more about that?
1: hmm Um, and, and I think, you know, I think it's really important to say, um, I'm a cis female and so I can speak from my experiences. I think it becomes far more complex for people that are not cis female, we do talk about trans fertility in that chapter because I think it adds different intersections and layers that are really important to consider almost every time, you know, and this is true in history too. If you're looking at someone like me, who, you know, white, cis, straight, educated, um, any difficulty that I'm experiencing, the difficulty just becomes more nuanced and more complex. Um, you know, and, and you think about in terms of birth, I had gestational diabetes. I had a high-risk birth. I went into it knowing that I had done everything I could. I, For an American, I had access to great health care. Um, but I also knew that my whiteness would allow potentially for other outcomes. Um, particularly in a country where women of color, particularly Black women, are four to five times more likely to die in childbirth. So when you think about some of these challenges, people have always died in childbirth. They die a lot less now, but they die a lot less now if you're white. Um, And so some of the conversations that women have been having over time, what is really infuriating is that the numeracy of them is Stubborn because of the white supremacist society that we live in. So, the percentages, the statistics, they're not falling at the same rate if you aren't white. It's infuriating to me to look at birth outcomes and the way that people are treated after birth and know that two things are true. The care that people receive after birth is far less involved than it was at the turn of the, turn of the 20th century. And the outcomes, Are far better if you're white. Um, So, some other concerns that still plague women is really this false dichotomy of the gender binary. You know, what is feminine? What is masculine? How do those structures work? And how does that impact your health? So, what we look at in chapter two, and I'm still really worked up about this because I just saw it happen again (laughs) on these Amy Schumer posts, is the just relax concept. You know, um, and Maya Doomsbury talks about this in Doing Harm. I really like the chapter in that book on um, women having heart attacks. So often women are told they're being hysterical or they have anxiety when what they're actually having is a massive heart attack. You know, there's been the red dress campaign and blah, 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 blah. And all of this talk about how women's heart attacks are different. But what hasn't significantly changed is the way that doctors perceive the initial event in the hospital. Those statistics, unfortunately, again, are stubborn. They are slow to change. And I think that this is a problem when we consider infertility as well, because when we're trying to support someone in our life who's struggling with infertility, what we often say, because we don't know what to say, is, you know, just relax, have a bottle of wine, go on vacation. You know, my sister couldn't get pregnant, and then she went on a cruise. Um, have you tried yoga? Have you tried acupuncture? And all of these things could be wonderful things. I'm not we're, And I'm glad you pointed out, Christina, you know, we're not giving people advice in this book. We're not telling them how to parent. And we're not saying you should or should not do yoga, or you should or should not do acupuncture or any particular eating regimes or anything like that. We don't have the expertise to advise on that. What we notice is that there are certain suggestions made all the time and the suggestion sounds updated, but the framework in which it occurs is not updated. The assumption is still that women could be infertile because they're just a little bit too hysterical. And if they would stop being so concerned about getting pregnant, maybe it would happen already. This is what doctors have been saying to women for 150 years now. If that worked, infertility would be solved. If you could get people to relax enough to get pregnant, we would have figured it out enough. We would have figured it out by now. That seems a lot easier than, you know, like getting ahead of an RNA virus that doesn't have an editor. you know? If all we needed to do was get people to relax, why don't we just put them? in, I don't know, a a low-level coma or something for a couple of weeks. I mean, I'm being ridiculous. But my point is that this idea that it is the hyper emotive quality of femininity that gets in the way, or this idea that women like sex less, and they're kind of cold and prudish, and you know, men want sex, and men are virulent, and men are the pursuers. and, And if it sounds like, what I'm saying is really old-fashioned. I'm sure a lot of your listeners were like, I don't think that way. I don't live that way. Most of the people I know don't live that way. No one does until someone they know can't get pregnant. And then they tell them the same things that everyone else has told them for 150 years. I had people who I think I'm pretty well-versed in their analysis. And, you know, they certainly would call themselves, you know, intersectional feminists and the whole thing saying like, oh, do you want some of my partner's sperm? Like, um, (laughs) no. Um, okay. (laughs) I don't even know how to respond to that. Um, also you didn't even ask what the issue is. How do you know that I need some, like how will sperm change structural issues with my uterus? Eh, I don't know. Um, but it's just that people feel like they don't have an answer and they don't know what to say. And because culturally we aren't Well versed in being comfortable talking about death or miscarriage or loss or infertility, Um, we can only talk about cancer as if it's a a warscape and you're either a soldier suiting up for battle or you don't care to survive. I mean, we we have these real extremes in how we're allowed to talk about these sensitive issues, and so much of it is built on the scaffolding of frankly Victorian understandings of binary gender. It's wild how much some of these things have not had their tentacles taken off of our understanding. But sometimes we only get to it when we're in the moment and we hear what comes out of our mouth.
2: And you you talk in the book quite a bit about the through line from the 19th century to now, that the consequence of this danger of believing that one can or should have full control over their body, and that if one doesn't, there's... Blame And the blame often falls back on the woman. And for the case of of this book, you say that leads to poor outcomes like miscarriage, pregnancy loss, preterm birth or an identifiably different child. And our attitudes towards those outcomes all go back to that idea that there is a way to control the outcome. Can you Mm -hmm. say a a bit more about um, how that influences the idea that
1: women are doing it wrong? Yeah, um, I think the chapter where we, where I think it's clearest how this mechanism works is in the pregnancy chapter. We deal a lot with what people tell pregnant people to do with their bodies. Um, and at this point, people seem that everyone who is pregnant is a cis female. And we know that that's not the case. Anything outside of cis female, people still... They don't know how to even interact with that yet, which is unfortunate. And so the discourse is, um, I'm going to say, not developed there. But the discourse is very developed for your sort of quote-unquote traditional cis female who is pregnant. And you know, you hear things like you have to stop running after six weeks, and you can't have any caffeine or any alcohol, and you can't have certain types of fish. And you can't go in an airplane at a certain point. And um, a lot of these behavioral guidelines are based on just what you said, this false sense of control that if I want to have a certain type of baby in an ableist society, I want to have a quote unquote healthy baby that's code for um, the baby doesn't look or is perceived different in any way. Um, then I will follow this behavioral code. And if I pay my time, and if I do what I'm supposed to do, the outcome is I will get the child that I am expecting, and society will deem me, at least at the outset, a good mother. Um, And we have a lot more data on what is actually safe or unsafe. But what has fascinated us was some of the things that sort of struck us as bizarre that people were reporting hearing over and over. One of them is don't lift your hands over your head um, because that would wrap the baby's umbilical cord around its neck. So that we've traced back to the early 1800s in Europe. And that's not not how it works. (laughs) Um, Thankfully, because anyone who has had a child in utero, uh, has had to lift their arms over their head um, probably more than once in that 40 weeks. Um, And also the don't move, you have to lay on a couch. Miscarriage rates were certainly higher in the portion of the Victorian era where people um, didn't have protection against childhood diseases, couldn't guarantee clean water sources in many areas wore corsets, or worked in a factory until the moment they gave birth under really brutal conditions. Um, so some of some of these we have to see as classes as well, right? You can, we had someone's midwife say, well, just get all your food at Whole Foods. Okay, so does that mean that everyone who's not doing that is a bad mother because they don't care to give quote unquote good food um, to their baby? um, or clean food. That's another thing that we didn't, we had a section on that that didn't make it into the book, but that's one of my pet peeves. When I hear people talking about clean food, I'm like, Oh, okay. But you are saying when you call some food clean, you are saying that other people are eating filthy food. And who are those people? Probably the people that don't have access to the resources that would let them eat clean food. Um, and we blame people for making bad food choices and endangering their unborn children or gaining too much weight, quote unquote, when they're pregnant, because they're not eating well. Um, But that's so much easier, isn't it? It's so much easier to say to the person who lives in a food desert or a person like me who stood to um, gain quite a bit of weight during her pregnancy because of gestational diabetes. And gaining weight during your pregnancy is not bad. healthy, and it's something that needs to happen. When you have gestational diabetes, your body goes about it in a different way, and that's extra taxing on your pancreas. So how that happens becomes important. But when we think about people who don't, you know, eat all organic, quote unquote, clean food for every meal, why are we pointing the finger at them instead of asking why they don't have access to that food? Something that we came up against over and over in this book. And we always hope that people walk away with this impression from the book and don't feel like we overstated it, but we just, it just happened in every chapter. We blame the individual. We put the target on the individual's back instead of on the structural issues that create the problems in the first place because it's easier. It's easier to say that someone is a bad mom because they're eating Cheetos than it is to say, first of all, I think it's fine to eat Cheetos, but it's easier to do that than to say. Let's change our food system. let's change our urban maps. let's change our economic access. let's change structural inequality. Let's get rid of white supremacy and racism And you know all of these systems they all come into play not only with the advice that we give but who we blame for not following the nearly impossible matrix of acquirement we ask people to take on and then perform. To prove that they are a worthy parent. It's so much easier to blame the individual, and that's certainly true in pregnancy.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And in the book, you talk about the root of that. You talk about how the standard for pregnancy, even though it's not explicitly said, it's inherently embedded in all of this, is that the standard is white, cis, middle to upper class. educated, married, um, and that that we continue this standard makes particular challenges for trans and non-binary and people mm-hmm. who have food deserts, people of color, people who, who have uh, inadequate um, either health insurance or access to health care, um, and that the further people fall outside this continued standard that they're never told exists, it just is of this mm-hmm. very white, idealized, normative idea of the perfect pregnant person, that the further they fall outside this narrative, they the closer they fall into the unfit category.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
2: being unfit can be something like not having a data plan that allows you to have these certain yeah. apps that your nurse or whoever may mm-hmm. suggest that you use to track certain aspects of your pregnancy, not having access to the organic foods or the health food store, the supplements, et cetera. And that this root bias goes all the way back into the 19th century, to when um, male doctors wanted to get the birthing trade that was heavily in the hands of midwives, and successfully so. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about how far back that standard goes? You, you mentioned a bit about how it was unrealistic even in the 19th century that women were factory workers, women were slaves, women were working outdoors, women were not all white, and they were not all of means. Um, And yet that those are the clientele that the male doctors were, were uh, going after to build their obstetrics practice. Can you talk more about that really fascinating section of the book?
1: Yeah. um, So I, I really love the research, you know, now it's, now it's 30 years old, but I'm so thankful for it. You know, Laura Ulrich and so many others who came behind her book on Martha Ballard showed that there were doctors on this, quote-unquote frontier, when the frontier was what's today Maine, and it was the outer reaches of Massachusetts. In the late 1790s and early 1800s, and it was certainly much more pronounced in the more urban areas of America by the 1820s, there were these doctors who realized that um, if they wanted to establish themselves as professionals, they would need a constant stream of business so that they would be known And established in the community, they would be seen in places they would be visiting a number of families. And the way to visit the most number of families would be to deliver babies. I mean, that was definitely one way to do it. And it also promised a stream of income because people were just going to keep having babies. You know, if you were doing other types of medicine, it might not have been particularly because there wasn't anything like pediatrics at the time, which is a, you know, 1930s um, practice. But, you know, it emerged in the first third of the 20th century. So you have this effort, and one of the ways that these doctors made inroads was to focus on individual midwives um, and call their practice backwards. Talk about the new technologies and the new methods that they were um, using, and in some cases, particularly in the South, with enslaved women. So they called, you know, granny midwives. Um, this is the name they use in the late 19th and through the, the 20th century. They were able to say, you know, these people aren't intelligent. These people aren't white. These people aren't educated. These people have never studied science. Why would we let these people have this role? So the way that all of these systems worked was a very, very easy discourse to put out into the public. Um, you know, and you had people in the early 20th century, you have President Teddy Roosevelt saying, you know, women are welcome to our highest praise and respect so long as they deserve it. Um, and right there, he gives the lie, right? So we understand that these systems are rooted in white supremacy. And we also have to understand that because they are rooted in these systems that even the people that tickle those boxes will never meet the standard because the standard does not exist. And that was part of this discourse right away. I think a really good example that emerges towards the end of the 19th century about how impossible this discourse is, is that whether you worked in a factory or whether you were the wife of someone in the Aster family in New York City, there were doctors who by this time had started to take on a decent clip of the midwife business, particularly in upper classes. Um, now with working class people and immigrants, particularly in New York City, midwives had good business, you know, well after World War I, um, to the great consternation of obstetricians in the city. But um, you have doctors and urban centers telling people if they don't want, and this is earlier it, the belief is earlier in the nineteenth century, but we start seeing it um in a lot of medical expertise pregnancy handbooks from the end of the nineteenth century that if you don't want your baby to be scarred or have a weird birthmark on their face or have the wrong color hair or be um quote unquote darker or duskier in skin tone than they should, um, you should make sure that you don't look at anything upsetting. So don't let your eyes see a carriage accident or a fire or someone striking another person in public. Um, and even somebody like the wealthy bourgeois in the last, third uh, quarter rather of the 19th century who went for a daily carriage ride in Central Park to show off their wealth and position did the chance, the risk of seeing something on you know, and, and quote, unquote, marking their baby forever. Um, and some of these types of medical advice, particularly about not looking at the wrong things so that your baby is the right quote, unquote, color. This is also a very, um, a very gymnastic way of denying that people have always had sex with each other. And um, this is something that doctors have used in the past um, to say, oh, well, this baby doesn't match the racial tenor of its father because the mother saw somebody of this skin tone kill. I mean, the gymnastics that people did, again, they're blaming the mother. They've put the onus on her eyes. And um, this is a way that you can blame the person without a really being honest about some of the things that are going on. But B, if, if the advice is to not look at something upsetting, and you live in an urban landscape, no matter what class you are, That's going to be difficult. The urban landscape was a pretty wild landscape um, in the 19th century. And so, again, right from the outset, they're giving advice that no one, even the person at the center of this myth, can really follow or uphold.
2: Which comes back to the advice to just relax, right? If you don't see something upsetting, if you don't think about something upsetting, if you don't tell the truth about potential infidelity, if you just Mm. don't engage with any of these uh, difficulties in your own society and in your own life, you can just relax. And if you just relax, the baby will be fine and and things will be all right.
1: Yeah, and Um, you'll get pregnant. You won't have any trouble. Everything will be just great. (laughs)
2: And you talk about this idea of of pregnancy police that we have today, uh, both Mm -hmm. online and in people's lives, and how that's led people to sort of resist expert advice because they're just getting so much of it. And Mm -hmm. you also talk about how the early version of the very popular modern uh, book, What to Expect When You're Expecting Encouraged Mm -hmm. Women to self-advocate, to ask questions, to think for themselves, and current versions tell them not to. Yeah. And can you talk about this this um, great disconnect between all of these ideas and how women are supposed to somehow figure out how to do it right?
1: It was fascinating for us to look at earlier versions of this. And we cite a woman who I would have to look up her first and last name now, but she's in the book. It's actually her unpublished dissertation, and we cited her extensively because we want people um, who can get their hands on it, and if you want this dissertation, email me, and we'll figure out um, how to get it to folks, but she did a really close study of what to expect when you're expecting, and prompted by some of the arguments she was making, we were looking for, okay, but what did they have to say about expertise? And the digital world, and I just remember Maggie was so frustrated because an earlier version of the text said, you know, if it doesn't sit right with you, talk about it with your doctor. If your doctor isn't listening to um, something that is happening with you, talk to a nurse. If that nurse isn't listening, maybe consider changing your practice. But in the interim, you know, there's been a swing back and forth on how much institutional respect and power we give to expertise. Um, and, you know, versions in the 90s are like, your doctor will tell you and just know that your doctor has your best interest at heart. And then now it's all, and also the authors are different. <laughs> there were more lay authors at the beginning. And now if you look at who the authors are on updated editions, you will see that they are doctors. Um, particularly obese, and usually they allow, you know, like a token layperson on the editorial committee. Um, And so the thing that really bothered Maggie was (laughs) the text said, you know, and don't be walking on your phone, because you could fall and that could hurt your baby. And Maggie (laughs) was telling me this, like, okay, well, first of all, Uh, If you can get hurt when you fall, then no one should be walking on their phone, not just pregnant people, but like everyone else that could get hurt. And B, half the people are reading this on the app or their Kindle because they're not getting a physical copy anymore. So they're reading on a device how to not read things on their device while they're out in the world so that they don't accidentally hurt their baby. Um, So even how and where you read digitized sources can be a source of blame. And that's a really far cry from the self advocacy that this book really um, talks about at the beginning. And you know, we we interviewed um, someone for our preterm birth chapter, and her daughter um, was born at I want to say twenty seven weeks, but um, she was feeling a lot of pain and discomfort, but she was young very young I'm in her early 20s and the doctor kept telling her to wait for it just relax because she was too anxious and 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 and, you know good for her she kept trying and trying to tell people she told a couple of other nurses she tried to change doctors and the nurses were like no no you know just let's let's check on it again anyway she had a cervical issue and she went into preterm labor because of a cervical issue. Um, They, the actual diagnosis, again, showing you how deeply um, sexism and patriarchy works in medicine, the actual diagnosis that is still used today is incompetent cervix. um, Because it's not an accident. You just went ahead and had an incompetent cervix because you're a bad person and a bad mother. Um, but we like to say she had a cervical issue. That seems like, hey, this is something that happens. It's not because she failed. <laughs> there was just an issue and that's the problem. Um, a lot of people to work around this issue have what's called a surclage procedure. Um, but because no one listened to her, she had her first baby at 27 weeks because she was young and there's nothing wrong. You know, she got pregnant easily and, you know, just relax and, uh, she went into labor really, really, really early and had a lot of trouble early on in her relationship with her daughter as a result. So yeah, that's been a hard thing to watch change. And even the people that we know now who advocate for themselves often don't get very far depending on their age, their class, their race, their gender identity. Um, These roots go really, really deep.
2: And you talk about
1: that in the book,
2: you say there's been a coalescence of the narrow conception of what is a good pregnancy with mm-hmm. what is good motherhood mm-hmm. and um, the intensity on how they're inseparable, that if you don't somehow meet this uh, unattainable standard of good pregnancy, you can't meet the standard of good motherhood and um, mm-hmm. And yet motherhood is again and again told to people to be natural. And so if you can't achieve it, it's something that should be fixed or something that you can fix. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then we come back to the idea of, well, you're you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk more about how good pregnancy uh, in the literature and in, in um, social media and in popular culture is so intrinsically tied to the idea that it's necessary for good motherhood?
1: Well, I think that um, what we've seen in the literature, and I think a lot of gender theorists are pretty good about talking about this connection that um, pregnancy is very different from other health processes. And then at some point it becomes visible and um, undeniable. And that because <laughs> women's bodies are perceived so as sort of, Know, belonging to everyone. Um, People still get touched on the bus or, you know, getting out of an Uber or, you know, there are a lot of ways that people are not safe. And this is still a problem with pregnancy. People come up and touch your belly. Um, People give you unsolicited advice and offer their expertise all the time about what you should and shouldn't be doing. We interviewed women who um, went and ordered a coffee at Starbucks. And, um, even though their doctor had said, yeah, you can have a coffee in the morning, have, you know, this many ounces, this is what I would suggest per day. This is what the literature says. And, you know, the young person doing their coffee at the counter handed them the coffee and said, I need this with decaf because you shouldn't be having a regular coffee. So because it's this very visual, um, obvious process in some ways, um, everyone feels like They should be able to police what you are doing um, because it is a broader political question. So, something that we talk about in the book is that, you know, it seems like people think they should have access to how you perform pregnancy because that's your first chance at creating the type of citizen that will sacrifice themselves for the government in the end. If there is a war, if there is a depression, if there is you know, an external threat of some kind. Who will be the right type of citizen to sacrifice themselves at the time and place of the government's choosing? You know, this is not particular to America. Most states in the last 200 years have expected this level of commitment and sacrifice or this level of Citizen creation and malleability and uniforming. These are big political economy questions, political science questions, but it is happening on the pregnant body. So it seems that in the American public, everybody now thinks that they are part of the process of helping you create the right kind of person to partake in our society. And that because you are visibly pregnant, that is the first time that you can perform the type of mother that you are. And the way that you perform that is to fit and in type inside of this type typography that you and I have already mentioned that is very narrow, and that even the people who fit inside of it do not actually achieve. Um, so pregnancy is this first moment. Um, after that, you might be out and out with a baby. I mean, you just I just talked to the Daily Beast about what's going on with Meghan Markle, right? She has been shamed for the way she holds her baby. P.S. That's not a bad hold for a baby. (laughs) People who actually have expertise in the area were like, that's what's common hold. Um, Why was she in Canada? Where was her baby? Um, Because, you know, no one's ever left their baby with a family member or a responsible, loving caretaker at any time in human history. So it was terrible that she did that. And, you know how she's going to um, have a family now that she's, you know, evacuated her post with the, you know, it's just on and on and on. And, you know, the woman can't catch a break. Meanwhile, you know, Kate is a white, very wealthy woman that stepped into her position and people can't say enough good things about her. Meghan Markle made the mistake of not being white, not being royal and making her own money. And so people are so uncomfortable with the reality of the success of who she is. And I am not an expert on these issues, but I saw the video of her reading a book with her child and I thought it was darling. She just seems like, a, you know, again, I don't know her and just viewing a video, but she seemed lovely. She seemed like she really liked her kid. The way that we are critiquing her, there's a lot about how we police motherhood in general. Are you white enough? Are you rich enough? Are you proving your ability to be this perfect standard? Would Teddy Roosevelt have approved of your motherhood? It seems like we're always trying to push people back into these frameworks. And I think the response to what she is doing, you know, people had stuff to say about how much she gained when she was pregnant, right? It started when she married into the family, but the volume got turned way up. When her body started taking up physical space in the environment and it was clear that she was pregnant and that she was going to create another member of the royal family, a royal subject, a British citizen, um, then suddenly everybody had the right to pile on and did and drove. And so that leads
2: us very nicely to chapter six because Meghan Markle is well postpartum Uh, Her baby's about a year old. And one of the things that you bring up is about adequate care and support postpartum um, and that the focus is really on the child and the care of the child and booking all the appointments and finding all the right things for the child. Meanwhile, the woman's body has just been through something extraordinary and has this what you call the fourth trimester and onward from there as well and, and you mentioned things like the weight gain and 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 that and so when you were doing the research about how women today receive postpartum support and you compared it to um even 100 years ago you had some very interesting findings could you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that
1: yeah and i was 30 weeks pregnant when we were working on that chapter so i was i was in a mood <laughs> While I was writing that chapter, I was pissed. I was like, this is, I am so angry while I was writing this. And, and I was like, and I could get extra help in the postpartum period because I have economic access and I'm white and I have all this structural privilege and it's still impossible. You know, and I just, I I was so angry for all of us. And I found, and you know, Christina, you, you probably know this from your research, what they used to call the postpartum period was the lying in period, right? And women were expected to take to bed for a little while. And I you know you researched uh, women, yeoman women in the New England area. So, what often happened in those communities, correct me if I'm wrong, is that women will kind of come together in that early period, right after someone had a baby, and they would help with chores and feed the chickens, help with the garden if that was necessary, help a little bit with the childcare. Partners would do that too, but they also had those you know, outdoor and livestock responsibilities that didn't go away. And then that woman, when she was up and about and a little bit better, she would go to someone else's house to help them. And there were these extra supports, um, so that women could spend even two weeks just laying down and recuperating. Unfortunately, because of the way that some of these obstetric births happened with the men newly coming into obstetrics and using forceps poorly, the in period was much longer because um, women were really injured. Um, um, so I was pregnant and, and Maggie, I think had actually just had Teddy at the time. And so I was reviewing files that I had gotten from the Francis Contre Library at Harvard, um, their medical library complex. And what we were first looking for is that we wondered, was there any evidence? Was there any kind of code of language? Was there anything signaling to us if people were even looking for it? So we didn't go in with high hopes that women experience postpartum anxiety or depression Obviously, not the way it's anachronistic to look at it the way that we define it now, but we were wondering if there was other language that people use that might signal to us that people were having trouble um, with their emotions or their mental health after birth. That's what we went into the archive looking for. And I showed up in Boston and I was allowed to look in the, I couldn't picture any of them because of um, temple laws and things like that, but I was looking at the Boston Lying In Outpatient records. Now, these are Um, Men, male doctors, who were interns going through their rounds and for their obstetric training, they went to immigrant housing complexes, usually, um, you know, tenement communities, and they were there to help the mother give birth. And then they stayed, helped with cleanup, got the mother and baby settled, came back 12 hours later, 24 hours later, every day. And sometimes if the mother had some kind of fever or there was any other issue, the doctor would come two and three times a day and the doctor was able to take care of both baby and mother. But what the doctor was doing first was taking care of the mother to ensure that the mother and other family members would be able to take care of the baby. Um, and and we, we could see medical technology changing in this. At the beginning, they were giving people you know, rhubarb plants, you know, powdered rhubarb and some of these other capsules to help with bowel movements, which is a big deal after you have a baby. And then um, they got some of the magnesium powders on the market, and then the rhubarb disappears. Um, and so we were able to track some of these technological changes, but I was just flabbergasted by the level of care that these people got. And it was free, it was part of these hospitals training systems. And they wrote up these really detailed cases because it was part of their training. And it was how they trained other doctors. And they were trying to show them the types of care, temperature and blood pressure, and checking the fundus and making sure there was no, um, you know, there wasn't any kind of infection and treating things if you know, stitches or other things were not going well. Um, how do you help if there was some kind of hemorrhage? Are you putting silver nitrate on the baby's eyes? Are they gaining weight? What's the texture of their skin? You know, um, all of these things, it was just so much care happening and it was constant. And, you know, time and time again, I just started tabulating. It was two weeks, it was three weeks, it was six weeks, it was 10 days. It was daily visits, daily care, daily rest. And at the end of it, there would be tons of, you know, little pain medicines, a little extra silver nitrate, here's some magnesium to help your bowel movements, major tea um, helped you with mastitis, which is what we would call it today. But, you know, they would uh, talk about, um, congested breasts and not the doctor's hand expressing milk. That does not happen. Let me tell you, find me someone out there who's OB, hand express breast milk out of their breasts in the hospital because they were uncomfortable. Midwives will do that. Yes. Nurse midwives. Yes. But these were male obstetricians and it was expected. It was what they did. And so many times at the end, Christina, there would just be this little entry, their last entry, and it would just say, convalescence was smooth and normal. That was their expectation. It was normal that it would take weeks, that it would take once daily and sometimes twice daily check-ins, that people needed support and monitoring. And a place to sound off, and their babies needed to be looked at, and they needed time to establish their relationship with their new body, their new baby, all of these things. It was free, and it was normal. None of that exists today. Almost none of it. That one 20-minute, six-week thing, It's not it. And you
2: talk about that, um, that you position the United States – uh, where it fits with other countries. and mm-hmm. while we have better uh, outcomes than the developing world, when it's compared to um, countries that you may think we absolutely have our system on a par with, we actually don't we don't compare with them at all. Can you talk a mm-hmm. bit about um, where we actually fall today on that spectrum of providing maternal and postpartum care?
1: As of late 2018, and um, from what I've read, it's gotten slightly worse, not better. We have the worst rate of maternal death postpartum in the entire industrialized world. And not just a little bit worse, orders worse. So, you know, we have people, over a thousand people, around a thousand people dying in the post period, and that's birth to six weeks in the US. And, you know, in Ireland, it's like 74. <laughs> you know, in Canada, you know, it doesn't top 100. In Cuba, it's better. In you know, in so many countries that you might not expect that are sort of that, um, if we're thinking about countries in terms of their socioeconomic standing, you have this you know, emergent economy, you know, Thailand has better outcomes than we do. Um, it, you know, kind of, countries like China, it's harder because we don't always know what they're reporting. But, you know, there are a number of African countries that have on par with our outcomes. And, you know, in many cases, African societies have a much better support system than the US. They expect people have 40 days, they have particular rituals, they have particular strengthening foods. There's an expectation in a lot of these communities, including the urban communities, and you know, there's plenty of large urban areas in Africa, um, that people will come together, that family members will come, that you will have these certain foods and this certain relationship to the healing time. And that has been sustained there. And a lot of these countries report far lower levels of postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis and things like that. Now, let's say, just for the sake of argument, that a lot of these countries don't recognize them or don't accept that as sort of part of the landscape of human emotion. Even if we take that on, our rates would probably still be a little bit higher um, because we know it's happening around the world. um, But even where it's underreported because it might not be seen or accepted, our rates are just so much higher and you know with something like postpartum psychosis, which is a real um, which is a real chemical issue of its own. It has very particular um, it has a very particular constellation of things that you need to look for. It takes a lot of expertise to see and to you know support people we talked to a man who's wife had postpartum psychosis after having a child. And she um, reached the point where she was worried that um, Christ would not come again if someone else held her baby. This is very different from postpartum anxiety. It is It is an alternate reality and it's dangerous to the mother and the baby. And but what we're finding and what we're hearing and what studies are saying at ProPublica and NPR and a lot of these news agencies are tracking maternal death now because so few people were talking about it. And what Maggie and I finally started realizing at the end of all this research is no wonder people are so upset here. after the hit. No wonder so many people develop postpartum anxiety. They don't have any support and they don't have any health care. Leaving the hospital and saying, I'll see you in six weeks during that window when the vast majority, you know, when, when virtually all postpartum maternal death occurs, um, it's no wonder that people feel completely isolated, completely alone, and, and can end up in a dark place as a result of that. We have built a system that ensures that that will happen because we've built a system that when the candy is out of the wrapper, we throw away the wrapper.
2: And we're starting to run out of time, so I could talk to you about this forever because we've just touched the iceberg of this book. I encourage listeners to to get it and and read more because there's so much more. But um as we wrap up, um, I was wondering if you'd like to share some of your thoughts that you offered in the conclusion because you you try, you you suggest that we really need to move the idea from the idea that the pregnant person, who may be non binary, maybe cis, maybe trans, but the pregnant person, we need to move the discourse from whether or not that pregnant person is doing it right or wrong to the system. And how can we look at the system that all of this is taking place in the access to food, the access to um, medical care, the access to advice, to support? Um, And you had a a number of uh, thoughts at the end where you say we have to reshape the discourse and the dialogue for how we can start doing it right. Um, And could you share a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think this is a good moment to talk about the kind of complicated relationship we have with social media In the book. We are certainly clued into and very aware of the ways that social media can be a really damaging place for people that are in this, what we call the life cycle of early motherhood. Um, We also talk about how motherhood itself is a complicated term in the book. But I think what we start to get to in the conclusion is that there are places where social media also offers a real opportunity to circumvent these institutional impressions and force them to change. And if we're really going to change these experiences and thus our experiences as a culture and our health outcomes in all of these areas. We have to take the target off the individual, and we have to put it on the institutions and our social structures that make these things possible. So I don't know if you can hear, there is a helicopter going overhead. I live right across the street from the hospital where I had my babies. Um, So one of the things that we talk about in the conclusion is the global bill pay policy. And that was going on while Maggie and I wasn't in place yet when we had our first and it was when we had our second. And it's a it's a letter that they send to you and it looks like it has a bill on the second page. What you don't realize until you look into it is that it's an estimate. And it gives you the total of what they think that your birth will be. And then they pitch what they think your insurance will pay. And then they give you a, a final number. And the number is often between five and $10,000. And on the front page, they say, you need to pay this this amount by 27 weeks, or you can risk termination of care. And they're very careful about how they say this, because by saying you can risk termination of care, they're not actually saying we'll terminate your care. They're not actually saying you have to pay the bill. They're insinuating it. So legally, they're protected by doing this. The first thing I thought when I read this was, what would you do? If you got this bill and you looked at this number and you did not read English as your first language, <laughs> but what would you think? Um, what would you get this, think if you got this and weren't up to, uh, in, in legalese land and you didn't have $5,000 sitting in the bank like most people? Um, I was so curious about this letter and I tried to have a conversation with my office about it. And just say, you know, this is really dangerous to be sending this out to people because they don't actually have to pay it, right? Um, So, and what if I pay it and I have a miscarriage? Like, are you going to give me my money back? Like, this is a very weird, cruel thing to do. And um, I remember the office administrator said, well, this is what we do now in the hospital. And I was like, oh, so people have to pay up front for their cancer treatment? And she said, no, that's not elective. This is an elective care. And I said, oh, in the U.S., maternal care is elective. I didn't realize that. And she said, no, it's elective because you chose to get pregnant. Which was very interesting to someone who had been in infertility treatment for four years, didn't land really well with me. But I think this conversation is indicative to how these systems work. Because we don't challenge so directly the system, but we blame the individual, these systems can just become whatever they want and do whatever they want. So on Facebook, I saw um, someone post about this letter and the conversation blew up. There were 700 comments within, you know, three hours and in there, just like we talked about in other areas in the book, but it's been a downside. There were tons of experts weighing in. But the upside in this conversation is that some of these people were people that had had babies, received one of these letters, but also worked for health insurance companies. And they were like, This is what you do. You write a letter and you say, I need an itemized bill by XXX. You need to use this coding, this phrasing, sign it this way, date it this way, and send it. You will not be asked about this procedure or this process any further. And then you can just pay your bill once you've had the baby and you know what it actually costs. And so people started doing this and then reporting back to the to the actual conversation to this um, comment chain, and said they had done it successfully. And I took this advice and I did it too. Um, and it worked for me. And what's so funny is that when I was having this conversation with the person in this office, you know, who didn't write this letter. And again, I'm not going to put the target on this one person. They were the mouthpiece for a chain of people that have very different power than this particular person I was talking to. But they said to me, you know, I said, people are talking about this online. They're not going to be paying these bills and people are strategizing how to do this together. Like you all need to think about how the community is actually going to respond to a letter like this and to these policies that are now in three hospital systems that aren't related to each other. And the person just looked at me and said, yeah, that's great that you're like into the internet or whatever, but those conversations don't have any meaning to us. But I know now dozens of people that never paid this bill and waited for their final bill because we had this conversation online. There is a way in which this discourse here can actually bring about systemic change, depending on you know who's involved in the conversation and, and how people are, are able to work together. And um, I think we do have to come together and we do have to work together, but I'll say myself as an educated white cis person, I have a lot of undoing learning to do to figure out how to engage in these discourses in a way that doesn't do damage to people that are experiencing oppression differently from me, um, and that's something that you know is going to be the most important work that I do as I think about how to move these targets from individuals to institutional structures.
2: Sounds really important. Thank you for sharing that, Bethany. Um, mm-hmm. We have a couple minutes left. Would you like to tell us about your current project?
1: Yes, I am actually looking at two epidemic outbreaks. And it's interesting because I did the work on them all. Right. I finished both of these an initial rounds of these projects right before COVID. Um, so I've been writing uh, and researching encephalitis lethargica, which some people will know it was in the movie Awakenings. Um, but I actually look at the children who had Um, Encephalitis lethargica, particularly in urban centers, because that's where the material is the easiest to find. But interestingly, uh, people originally thought that it was linked to H1N1 and that children were getting the H1N1 flu strain and then ending up with Encephalitis lethargica as a result. Um, So I wasn't surprised being deep into that literature that people were seeing that Kawasaki um, disease coming out of COVID in some children because Um, influenza is also an RNA virus and they do weird things in the body. So I have been looking at that moment in late teens and early twenties and how people offered treatment to children whose personality had changed after they got a fever, particularly before we had most of the mental health apparatus um, that we would have at the end of the 20th century. And I'm also looking at um, the 16th century plague outbreak in Glasgow, Scotland, because I'm interested in the gender differential in their public health systems. So I'm really enjoying those two projects. Um, it's giving me a lot of new material and new intellectual challenges.
2: Those sound great, and I invite you to come back and talk to us about them when when they're published. Um, <laughs> I want to thank Bethany Johnson for giving us her time today to talk about her new book from Rutgers University Press entitled You're Doing It Wrong, Mother, Media and Medical Expertise, which she wrote with her co-author Margaret Quinlan. You've been listening to new books in gender, and we hope you'll tune back in soon. Thank you.